0: Jason was here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I'm switching gears a little bit today, and I've actually got a pair of my favorite residents on. Doctors Emma Harding and Laura Bricklin are a pair of pediatric residents at Children's Hospital Colorado, and some of my favorite trainees. They were awarded a catch grant from the AAP, specifically to develop some education sessions and products around drowning safety. Doctors Harding and Brooklyn wrote up a really fantastic set of show notes and have some really solid points on things that you can tell to your patients and their families, no matter the situation or environment you're seeing them in. So I really like to uh, start with the ending uh, and then we'll talk about it and we'll come back to it. So why don't you give us what your take-home points by the end of this talk are going to be. And just to break in here, because I didn't do a good job of introducing them in the recording itself, but this first voice you're going to hear is Dr. Emma Harding.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing we want to remind your listeners is that drowning is the number one cause of preventable death in children one to four. It surpasses even motor vehicle accidents in that age group, which is just shocking. Um, Our second point is that you can't drown proof a child. So even if you're in the most rigorous of swim lessons, a child is never drown proof. So the goal is to put in place as many layers of protection between the child and the water as you can. And then finally, our third point is that providers, especially ED providers, are often a first line that families encounter in terms of education, anticipatory guidance. And they're the people that we want to be able to take this message to families if they encounter them in the emergency department.
0: Let's go over that data then. What are the numbers around drowning as far as injuries and deaths and ER visits? and, And how do we know any of this?
1: Yeah. So
2: like Emma said, I think we were certainly surprised to find out that drowning is the number one cause of preventable death in kids age one to four and is a major contributor for kids in other age groups, notably teens as well. So for kids age one to four, the... Biggest risks are mostly due to kids' natural inclinations as toddlers, uh, getting into things around the house and exploring. As anybody in any type of clinical encounter has noticed, toddlers naturally, you know, opening every drawer in the exam room and trying to bust out when they can. And so, most of the deaths from toddlers with drowning occur, uh, quote, like in plain sight, if you will. Uh, so, this is in backyard pools if families have those available and are not secured or even in simple things around the house like bathtubs, toilets, and buckets. And again, people don't think about that, but toddlers, top heavy. So just, you know, even looking into something where they can't get out of it, if they if they fall into it can pose a real hazard.
0: We're talking that the big dangers are not like toddler didn't learn how to swim and and went away and ran into the ocean or or is like in the woods somewhere and wanders away. These are primarily household accidents or, or places where they're be familiar with and not particularly afraid of the environment.
2: Absolutely, Jason. And I think, you know, this certainly is much more on people's minds in states where they have more ready access to water you know the coastal states where beaches and and such are uh, readily available but also states that are uh, in warmer climates than Colorado where we are and and everybody's got a pool in their backyard uh, but These hazards are present no matter where you're from, no matter where you live, no matter what background you're in. Uh, So just thinking about what your risks are in your own home, in your own backyard.
0: And just to keep the voices straight, that is Dr. Laura Bricklin, who was speaking there. What's the risk profile here? Like, I I think I remember that there are two primary age peaks where we're seeing most of the the drowning injuries and deaths and, and that they have slightly different risk factors. So do you want to talk about those?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of a bimodal distribution in terms of pediatric patients and risk of drowning. So the main group that Laura and I are focused on is the toddler, the one to four age group. Um, And Laura's already talked about them a decent amount. And the second group we often have to think of is the teens. So teens age 15 to 19 have the second highest drowning rate in terms of the pediatric population. And oftentimes, unfortunately, there's um, a substance involved in these accidents, and they're more likely to occur in the open water settings where people are out on lakes or rivers, and they may not be wearing a life jacket or an appropriate Coast Guard approved life jacket.
0: Yeah, no, those are likely related to their generally poor development of executive functioning and decision-making. Yeah, the smooth
1: gyri in the
2: frontal lobe. <laughs> <laughs> and Jason, when you take those two peaks together, there are over a thousand pediatric drownings per year across the age range and almost 9,000 uh, ER encounters for drowning. So non-fatal and fatal drownings combined.
0: Yeah, which is substantial, especially for something that feels like it should be Preventable.
2: Totally. And actually, one of the things that um, the AAP has tried to get out in terms of messaging is the terms fatal and non-fatal drowning instead of calling uh, near drowning or uh, an accident. Both near drowning and accident are a little bit misnomers. Near drowning implies that the event that occurred wasn't anything, which we know is not true because certainly kids who have quote, non-fatal drownings have significant morbidity associated with them, including, you know, prolonged hospital stays and and adverse outcomes um, afterward.
0: So let's jump into the prevention mechanisms. In particular, what things should a, a healthcare provider know as far as being able to counsel patients? And, and you know, you can do this as a, as a primary care doc and the ER, the urgent care, any touch point you have with patients.
2: So again, I think, Jason, a lot of this comes to meeting families where they're at and the risks of drowning depend. on the environment that you're in. So for providers who are seeing families who have access to pools, whether it's a community pool or a backyard pool, the AAP recommends having uh, 48-inch fencing surrounding the pool on all four sides. Uh, Sometimes uh, that parents think that having the house as one side of the fence makes sense. Certainly a lot of homes have that, uh, which is Not safe at all. Kids can slip out of the back door. Um, And then making sure that that fence is secured by an automatic latch. And then uh, in terms of other household risks for toddlers, uh, buckets, bathtubs, toilets, even dog pools. Uh, Again, talking to families about what their exposure to water is on a daily basis and how to mitigate those risks.
1: One of the things that, in general, pediatricians do a good job is counseling on safety proofing. And certainly that becomes much more apparent when the child is becoming mobile. But, you know, it's easy to identify at houses when they have uh, light socket covers or maybe the Doorknob guards, but people don't generally think of water as a threat. It's often viewed as this fun environment for play. Um, and generally the times around water are meant to be fun. And so counseling people about the risk that water poses and thinking of it as a risk like electricity for a child because they don't know any better is important. You know, this is probably a good point to talk about some of the other layers. So obviously, we've talked about safety proofing in the house, we've talked about the pool requirements, um, you know. The AAP does recommend that all adults and older children learn CPR, so that if an event were to occur um, surrounding a family, that they would know how to first respond, because as we know, those initial minutes are critical. Some of the other things that we can put in place are encouraging families to enroll their kids in swim lessons um, once they're of an appropriate age. So officially, you know, if they're meeting developmental milestones, could enroll as early as the one to four age group. And then counseling your teens whenever you see them about not using substances and if they. Are not combining them with high risk activities like swimming and driving.
0: Do you know if there is any data that shows that swim lessons are effective at reducing drowning rates? And I ask this with a little bit of trepidation because that's a hard study to do. You're not going to randomize that. And so it. it whether or not you've been taught to swim has a whole host of other co-factors like socioeconomic status and geography that that might be a little bit hard to tease out.
2: There are some studies, again, like you uh, alluded to, Jason, a uh, uh, very difficult topic to study. But there are some studies that show that kids with swim lessons do have lower risk of drowning. But that being said, again, this issue is most prevalent in the one to four age range where no matter how proficient your toddler is, no matter how many swim lessons you have put them in, they're not a professional swimmer and these risks are still there. In fact, we have data from Colorado and certainly I'm sure similar in other states that show that at least a third of kids, uh, toddlers who drowned were Quote, "Proficient" or had taken lessons in swimming.
0: So, yeah, that's a good point. There, there is a regardless of your your lessons, there is a a physical size and energy component that goes into it, which is why every time I see a video of uh, neonatal uh, swim classes, I I freak out. Yeah, as you should.
1: Yeah, the the one good study that people like to reference was by Dr. Ruth Brenner, um, and it was done, I believe, in the early two thousands. Um, And she had a case control study that looked at the association between swimming lessons and the risk of drowning. And I believe she found somewhere, and I don't remember the official odds ratio, but somewhere between like a 50 to 88% chance of having the fatal or non-fatal drowning prevented if the children had been enrolled in swim lessons.
0: Let's clarify that statistic. So the article was from March 2nd, 2009, titled Association Between Swimming Lessons and Drowning in Childhood, a Case Control Study. First author is Ruth A. Brenner, published in JAMA Pediatrics. And what it showed was that participation in formal swimming lessons was associated with an 88% reduction in the risk of drowning in the one to four year old children but with a very wide confidence interval, the 95% confidence interval went from 3% to 99%. So it's made this paper a little bit difficult to analyze given that wide confidence interval. But as we discussed, it's, it's a difficult study to really do. Any other layers of protection that we should be aware of or, or should counsel on?
2: Um, I, I think another big one that we didn't talk about in with bathtubs and bath time is just how important it is to be ready when you're around water and be present. So, you know, I had a family that I saw in clinic and the mom had the infant in the bathtub and she just turned around, opened the cupboard to get the shampoo out of the cupboard and turned around and the baby had, um, you know, tipped back in the bathtub and gone underwater. Certainly the child was fine, uh, spent the night in the ER under close observation, probably by Dr. Woods here. Uh, it was, again, it was fine, but a Totally terrifying moment for that family that could have gone much worse um, if even just a second longer had gone by. And the same applies to outdoor bodies of water, lakes, um, rivers, pools, etc. So the importance of just constant, vigilant, undivided attention on your kids. There's a misconception that drowning is like you see it in the movies where the kids out in the water splashing and calling for help. And in reality, drowning is silent and very quick. And so it's essential that parents or providers or caregivers be watching their kids at all times when they're around water, regardless of what that water source is.
0: Um, if y'all are all right with it, let's move in a little bit to talk about pathophys and, and some management points while we're at it, especially being from the ER. If all I got to do all day was just counsel on prevention, I would be very bored because I, I need some excitement. So <laughs> so it, it, do we know anything about sort of what, what causes drowning or what what's the cycle when somebody is underwater?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, Again, they're like we were talking about with the kind of misconception of what drowning looks like. Certainly, drowning does uh, start with this period of panic uh, and trying to figure out what to do. And so, oftentimes, actually, kids present uh, with their heads up above water like this. And so, it's more subtle than you'd expect because their arms are below water, trying to keep them afloat, and their mouths are above water, trying to keep them, keep getting air. And then, unfortunately, you know, when the kid does slip under, Uh, Usually you have a glottic reflex with closure of the glottis and then inspiration against the closed glottis, which can have certainly downstream effects like post-obstructive pulmonary edema um, and lung injury from that. Also, depending on the water source and what the struggle was like, you can have inhalation injuries without a closed glottis. So inhalation of dirty water or uh, just an aspirational injury in general. So like a pneumonitis type picture. So regardless of whether you have inhalation against a closed glottis and then a a post-obstructive pulmonary edema type picture, or you have a true aspiration and kind of aspiration pneumonitis picture, uh, you have kind of, you know, what will evolve ultimately to become an ARDS picture in an emergency setting, looking at lungs with decreased compliance and likely VQ mismatching, and ultimately hypoxemia causing end organ dysfunction. Nailed it, Laura.
0: Let's talk a little bit about management then, and we'll start because this is really important with the pre-hospital and what can bystanders do or what sort of benefit can be provided by pre-hospital medical attention?
1: Yeah, so I think Having responders on the scene, even if they're lay people is, you know, and making sure they're educated is one of the most important things that we can do in those initial minutes when the child is pulled out of the water. And um, so immediate resuscitation is probably the most important thing that a drowning victim would require. And contrary to the belief, um, you know, in the adult CPR studies where compressions are the most important in these victims, it's the ventilation that's going to be the most important piece in terms of rescuing them. Um, So there was a large population study done in Japan that didn't show significant neurologic outcome um, after one month for drowning victims who were treated with compression only versus CPR with rescue breathing, which I think is a little counterintuitive to the way that I would approach a drowning victim. Laura, anything that you want to add there?
2: I think, you know, like most injuries or accidents that we see that involve exposure, the number one thing is uh, removing the patient from said exposure. So safely removing the patient from the body of water. Uh, Certainly, that's much more of a process if we're talking about an open body of water or a large pool than in the bathtub at home, Uh, but safely removing the patient. Certainly, this conversation gets a little bit more challenging when we're talking about cold water, submersion, injuries, and drowning there. Again, sometimes a complicating factor, especially in teens, less so in toddlers, but whether there was an inciting trauma and making sure you're thinking about ABCs from the get-go. But like Emma said, I think it's important that you're thinking about the respiratory component of a Resuscitation early because this is obviously a, a primary respiratory pathology, but not on, uh, dissimilar to many of our pediatric patients who are coming in uh, in arrest or peri arrest from respiratory physiology.
0: In the last couple of minutes, there, we started to veer into a topic that we just had not researched well enough to dig into heavily in this particular podcast. But what I did want to highlight was. In pediatrics in particular, there is not really any evidence or movement towards compression-only CPR, and I know there's been discussions in other patients and elsewhere, but it is unlikely that in a pediatric drowning patient that that is going to be the way that we're going to move. So if you are hearing some of those discussions or some of that research, maybe somebody will come out with an well-done, researched pediatric drowning protocol. I doubt that any of those are coming soon. But in general, we haven't moved towards heavier compression ratios in pediatrics, partly because we don't have data and partly because we think that the arrest mechanisms are likely different between children and adults.
2: And Jason, just another medical point, especially in the teen age group, I know I mentioned trauma as being possibly an inciting event for a drowning episode, but especially if you have an unwitnessed event from a teen, considering whether there could be a cervical injury from like a shallow dive or uh, hitting the bottom of the, of whatever body of water you're in, um, because that is a distinct, I think, pathology that you can see in in kids who drown.
0: Yeah. And that, that is good to think about because in general, for rescuer Attempts a lot of times trying to hold C-spine is not necessary and it can interfere with other resuscitative efforts, especially if there was no traumatic mechanism involved, but this is a place where there might be. And you're not going to have any way to know that for sure and, until you actually get them somewhere. So the answer for a lot of this is going to be do the best you can, but, I, but especially if it was an unwitnessed and could have been traumatic, I, I'd want to try to stabilize their C-spine as best as possible. The,
2: the last kind of uh, point I'd like to make is that kids with known arrhythmias or c Your disorders are at increased risk for drowning episodes, just like they're at increased risk for uh, car accidents as well. Uh, And so just if you have somebody on scene who's able to give you that history, you can target your out-of-hospital therapies to that Pathology.
0: Let's talk about what happens once they show up in a healthcare facility. We're gonna we're gonna frame this from the ER perspective because that's where I work. What, what do you do once the with them once they're there, or maybe what clinical points should we make sure people are aware of that might be different from a resuscitation from any other source?
1: Yeah, so I think in particular in terms of intubation on these individuals, you know, it happens relatively frequently in the ED when a child is being intubated for a primary respiratory pathology, but with drowning or non fatal fatal or non-fatal drowning, one of the important components is to make sure you pass that OG tube down um, to decompress the belly because during that period of panic and air hunger, they're at high risk for um, swallowing and aspirating water into both their lungs and to their stomach. So being able to relieve that obstruction so that you have more room for your non-compliant lungs to potentially expand and have ventilation and perfusion.
0: What about other things to pay attention to? And you know, everybody focuses on the airway and, and getting to do the sexy stuff like tubing. Are, are there other labs that you want to pay attention to? Or or what do you do with rewarming?
2: Jason, what's the ED mantra? Patient's not dead till they're warm and dead. So
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is actually one of the patients where, where they can be difficult to know because we certainly have this discussion not infrequently when you're trying to decide if they're cold because they have been dead for a while or if they're cold because they are hypothermic and that was part of their arrest. And, and that conversation depends a little bit on the mechanism. So the early morning baby that was found not breathing is likely to have, have not been alive for uh, several hours. And then then we have to make a decision. An immersion drowning that is hypothermic, their results are relatively better than other causes of arrest, Um, and so we will tend to work them a lot longer um, and and with a little bit more intervention to try to get their body temperature up. But but this is a discussion that we have with just about every patient who is arrested and is cold. Is is which one came first, or are they dead first, or were they cold first, and then what do you do from there? So in general, we we try to get their body temperature back up to above thirty two. Before we're willing to call it um, and and really aim for that unless you have a reason to suspect because of secondary findings that 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 patient has been dead for a while and that's the reason they're cold yeah
2: and, and Jason, I know you kind of mentioned this. We've been talking a lot about the arresting patient or the peri-arresting patient who's requiring significant resuscitative ep- efforts. The vast majority of kids that present with non fate or with drownings are presenting with non-fatal drowning. Remember, you know, a thousand drowning deaths a year for almost nine thousand ER visits. So the vast majority of these patients are presenting and surviving, oftentimes with relatively minor injuries. Uh, so. Uh, it's important to come up with a good game plan for what you're going to do to uh, initially evaluate and then ultimately monitor these patients.
0: This is the question we always get asked by the parents. They they had some event happen that was worrisome for drowning, but the patient is asymptomatic by the time they reach you, and the question is, how long do you need to watch them, or how do you know that you're not going to send them home and they're just going to die? So, do do we have any studies that looked at uh, when did people become symptomatic if if they were going to in a delayed fashion?
1: Yeah, Jason. So there. Was a review of 75 pediatric patients who presented for non fatal drownings. Um, and in that review article, it said that anyone who is going to develop symptoms related to that injury did so within seven hours of the immersion. Um, and depending on what type of immersion, you know, these patients are presenting within minutes of it happening to hours. So that gets factored into the time period that you want to obs them in the ED. But the general recommendation is if you watch them for close to eight hours, they should develop signs of injury if they are going to.
0: Which is great because almost always the answer for how long you need to observe somebody for any condition is two, four, or eight hours. So it's nice that that's where the data lines up. All right. Well, let's wrap this up by going back up to those take-home points and then anything else you want to leave the listeners with.
2: Laura, bring us home since I did it at the beginning. Again, Jason, our big take-home points for today are that drowning is the number one cause of preventable death in kids age one to four. No matter what you do, you can't drown proof with child Uh, Multiple layers of protection are needed to help prevent drowning, and providers, both in the primary care setting and in the emergency setting, are a major source of water safety education for our
0: families. I cannot wrap it up any better than that. There will be a really fantastic written summary in the show notes that I encourage you to go look at. Dr. Bricklin and Harding really spent a lot of time putting it together, and I think it is wonderful. I did stay away from quizzing them too much on what to do with the reports or the complaints of dry drowning. And I'm going to bring it up here only because every year there is a new story that comes out terrifying families about dry drowning. And this will include stories about how patients can get splashed in the face and aspirate and die, which is not true. So you are going to have to field those kinds of questions. Hopefully this gave you some ammunition for how to counsel about non-fatal drowning and what the difference is between that and getting splashed in the face or the the term dry drowning. I've been your host Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the little big med podcasts at www.littlebigmed.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.